Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Now this morning, um, let's read the Word of God as it's found in Luke. Uh, It's Luke chapter 12. You know that we're in the middle of a bunch of Sundays talking about money, wealth and money, and you know that on November 10th we're going to have Commitment Sunday. And Commitment Sunday is a Sunday when we do the equivalent of the Israelites bringing all their jewelry and whatever they had so that the temple could be built. And uh, we need to build, we need to add on to the church house and we need wealth to do it. And so we're talking to you about wealth because we're trying to get you to loosen your grip. All right, and you say, well, I don't have any wealth to hold on to. And I say, oh, yeah, you do. Um, you know, I, I, I remember when Mary Lee and I did not have chairs. We sat cross-legged on a shag carpet to eat, and we didn't have a phone, and, and we had money. And at that time in our lives, it was absolutely imperative that we gave our money to God. And I had one older Christian man who said to me, oh, when you're this poor, don't worry about tithing. And, and, and it's one of this, it's maybe the only stupid thing that older Christian man ever said to me. But it was stupid. And finally, Mary Lee and I fought and fought over our money. And finally, we figured out if we gave the first fruits to God instead of the second or third or fourth or fifth fruits. In other words, at the beginning of the month instead of the end of the month, all of a sudden, the problem vanished. And over our lifetime, it's been unbelievable how God has provided for Mary Lee and me. Um, One of the sweetest things was when, uh, again, when we were in Madison and I was a student, working hard and taking Greek and all this stuff. Mary Lee and I had uh, worked for a time driving uh, handicapped buses. as not the big bus, but the mid-sized bus. And for some reason, we decided to volunteer at this uh, retirement home um, to take the people wherever, you know, the mall, wherever they wanted to go. And uh, we made friends with this woman. And then we were in seminary. She died. And we would visit her. And she was fun. She was an artiste. And uh, she died. And all of a sudden we got this letter that she had left us (laughs) $25,000. And of course, that's why we volunteered. (laughs) This is like, what? Yeah, I just, we were flabbergasted by it. All right, here's Luke 12. Someone in the crowd, this is Jesus, someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to the man, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, so he would have, this is Jesus saying to everybody who's gathered there, Beware. And be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your eat, eat. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. And so some things never change, do they? (laughs) Kids fighting over inheritance. And, you know, I have done that. I have found myself being greedy about my mother's money while she was alive. And uh, going through this process of trying to um, just trying to discipline yourself and not love money. Um, And today, it's it's an interesting thing. I've you know, if you think about the product, the prodigal son, he took his inheritance when he left, and he was young. And today, what happens is parents keep your inheritance until they die. And today, they're dying at ninety, ninety-five, a hundred. By the time you're ready to retire, and so the the way that wealth works today. Um, It's very, very easy and extremely common to have tension in families over money. It's very sweet that uh, every time our family has come to the brink of fighting, that God has worked in each of us in a way that we haven't ended up doing it. But you know, it's very difficult to not fight over money. And this is extremely common. Can you imagine what the courts would be like if people weren't fighting over money? (laughs) You know? And so here are a couple of brothers fighting over an inheritance. And it was not uncommon for the rabbis to be the judges of these things. If you look back at the appointment of the first elders in Israel... They sat and they listened to cases. Well, what do you think the cases were? They're the same cases today. People were fighting. And so the elders were the ones that adjudicated those cases. And I keep trying to remind you that what the elders of this church do is they adjudicate your conflict. And you you don't quite believe that. And maybe we should be more explicit every time an elder works with you. Okay, here's who you're fighting with. You know, I think even when couples come in for marriage counseling, they don't think of it as elders adjudicating conflict. They just think, well, I need counseling. Well, no, you need somebody to tell your husband that he's a fool, right? Oh, no, your wife, right? And so... It was common back at that time for the rabbis who functioned somewhat in the role of elders to adjudicate, to, to try to make peace between people. And, uh, and so this guy comes up to Jesus and he says what? 
He says, teacher or rabbi, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus would not have none of it. He said, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, in history, a lot of people have made a lot out of that. They've said that this shows that Rome should not get involved in civil magistrate matters, that it's not the church's place to get involved in matters that the secular courts. But then you immediately go to Corinthians where you see, shouldn't the least among you in the church adjudicate matters rather than you going to pagans in the courts, right? And so don't make more out of this than you should. The Anabaptists would say that this showed that Christians should never serve in the courts and should never take vows and should not be judges and should just cut themselves off from all the, you know, all the secular apparatus of the civil court because this is what Jesus is saying. No, no, no. There's a situation that Jesus understands. There is greed that Jesus understands. And Jesus is not in this particular situation going to get involved. And and I could go on and on and give you hypotheticals about why Jesus didn't get involved. What Calvin says is that Jesus did not want in any way to encourage people looking to him as a political or a military or a civil leader. You know, the people were so prepped to have Jesus be the one who would lead their kingdom into independence from Rome, right? And so Jesus was not going to have any of that, but that may or may not be true. All we need to know is that Jesus said, man, who, made, who appointed me a judge over you or arbitrator over you? And, and Jesus was saying no, all right? But then he went on, and what did he say? Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Now, what are the forms of greed? Um, I've mentioned to you before that when we lived in Madison, we lived in low-income housing. And the lady across the hall from us was named Precious. And uh, she cared for Heather whenever we needed a babysitter. And Precious ran a, a, a poker game every Friday night. And uh, Precious always kept her temperature up at about 85 to 90 degrees, and the television was always on. And we didn't have a television, and we kept it at about 70, 68, you know. You go into her apartment, it was filled with smoke, alcohol, um, and a poker game, and 85 to 90 degrees, and the television blaring, and, and uh, it was a congenial atmosphere. And, and I'm serious, it really was. And we loved Precious. Precious loved us. She loved Heather. And we had no fears about Heather in that apartment. None. And you think we were crazy. No. We knew which apartments we should be concerned about. And they were right right next to us. Now, I tell you all that because that apartment was filled with greed. They all lived off the federal government or the state government. And it was filled with greed. Now, why would I say that? Well, because the poker game went from late Friday afternoon to very early Monday morning. And, and I, I counted it once, and if I remember correctly, there was like $40 in every kitty. And so you ask yourself, what was going on with that? Well, it was greed. 
You know, who's up, who's down on the weekend? You go into, uh, if you want to, and you're not in danger of gambling, if you want to see what America is, go into a casino. And it is one of the most intense morality plays that you can see in America today. Because what you'll do is you'll go in there and you'll see where all the money of America is going. All the people with expendable income go in there and they just throw their money away. And it just, it's mind-boggling. And the thing that I think is so interesting in there is that they all chain themselves to, to the machine that's taking their money. And literally, they have their wrists chained to, to, to the slot machine. Literally. Now, that's because the, the casinos give them an ID bracelet, and the bracelets chain to the machine as they play. Do you understand? But, I mean, it's not even a metaphor. It's literal. <laughs> but it's a principle, and so they're not chained because it's a principle. And that's how greed gets us. Whatever way we're owned by money, it's a principle. That's how abortion gets you. It's freedom of choice. And God just judges us. And he gives us dead babies, and we think it's a choice we made. And he gives us chains to slot machines, and it's, it's a principle. And... Uh, Beware against all kinds of greed. All kinds. When I was in seminary, we lived in the midst of the North Shore of Boston. There's a lot of old money in Boston. And my tastes are more old money than nouveau riche, right? And so I love living there because it was people that were genteel in their greed, And what that meant was that I could go down to the resale stores and buy Brooks Brothers suits for $12. And so, man, I, I, boy, I frequented, that was back at a time when I was a size where a lot of suits fit me. And today, I went to a resale. Well, anyhow, that's, and boy, was I proud. And then I'd also go in the dumpsters. And there was a dumpster up in Gloucester on Cape Ann that I every week I'd go in that dumpster and sort it from top to bottom. And, you know, if I came across a huge box of sour cream from Philadelphia cream cheese that had strawberry bits in it, and it was in the winter, so there was no spoiling, you know, I'd take that box back to married student housing, and I'd be so proud of my find. You know, remember the night that... I got, here in Bloomington is a night, I got $750 one night of Parmesan Reggiano out of the Kroger dumpster before they mechanized it, the jerks. (laughs) Somebody's getting... By the way, lest you think that, lest you think that that's, uh, even that night... Wayne and Joyce took the cheese. <laughs> and, uh, and you think about poor people, and you don't think about poor people being greedy. But poor people are greedy. Poor people brag about the suit they got down at the resale shop, about what they got out of the dumpster, 
about the great deal they got at TNT Repairable. And so really, all kinds of greed includes every single one of us. And greed is a terrible disease spiritually. It's sin. The Bible says greed is idolatry. And I remember when I realized that there was no difference between me and the rich man that bought his Brooks Brothers suits new. It was not an ounce of difference. You know, you're pulling stuff out of a dumpster, and you're just so proud of what you got. And you think, well, that's stupid. And I say, well, no, it's not. Front door, back door, it's the same food, same pride. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy American cheese, Parmesan Reggiano. Jesus says, beware of all kinds of greed. And there are many, many different ways that we are greedy. When it comes to money, uh, we are very, very complicatedly perverse. And I don't know what your greeds are. I know mine. And you have to study your greeds. <laughs> you know, every one of you has them. Caleb has them. And nobody would believe that Caleb has them, right? But Caleb has them. We all have them. And you have to study them to know your greeds. All right. He says, be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And I think that that's so funny that Jesus says, not even when one has an abundance does life consist. In other words, uh, the rich man is absolutely certain that finally he has arrived at a point where he's defined by what he owns, right? His life consists of his possessions. Jesus says, no, his life doesn't consist of his possessions. You you guys, Jesus is very, very sophisticated. Jesus is not somebody that's on Sesame Street. And so you have to think about what Jesus says. You can't be lazy when you listen to Jesus, right? And so, really, Jesus is wrong here. Because a rich man's life does consist of his possessions. I'm speaking the truth. So what does Jesus mean when he says that his life? Well, what he means is his contentment, his happiness, his purpose, his security. He's using life as a, as a, a way of speaking about the good things that the rich man thinks his possessions will bring him. Now, when I was in seminary, I did work for a very, very wealthy man. Actually, his wife was worth a lot more than he was. And they lived above uh, Lobster Cove on a point out in the ocean where there were just a few estates. One guy owned Ink and Yachting Magazine. One guy had invented the floppy drive. She was the, 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 the CEO, the president of the aquarium downtown, was on the board of Georgetown University, and he owned a hospital. If you go to Boston, you'll see Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. That was him. He ran that hospital, and they named it for him after he died. And so they had just money, 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 right? 
And they had an island up by the bushes in Maine where they were building a house. And they had a, another house down in Hope Sound, Florida. And they had an apartment in D.C. and an apartment in New York and an apartment in Boston just a half an hour from where they lived, right? And what was true about their lives was that their life uh, consisted of their possessions. But it was the bondage of rich people. And if I had ever been tempted to be rich... After I worked, you know, I, I polished their brass, I cleaned their their china, I drove them to the airport, I got their cars worked on, I cut their grass, pruned their trees, planted their garden, did everything that Enoch and uh, I forget what her name was didn't do. So they had three of us full time. And uh, just on that house, right? <laughs> and... Every single time they'd come home, and they were gone a lot of the time, uh, Mr. Mr. Spalding would come in the door and he'd say, Enoch, what, what happened? What's wrong, Enoch? What happened? What's wrong? And that was his life. And so when Jesus says this, he says, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. What he's saying is his possessions owned him. He didn't own his possessions. His possessions didn't give him joy. They were a burden. And it was hard work for them to spend their money. And you saw the work consume them. You saw the plans for the house. You saw them worried about this house and that estate and and this stuff and that stuff. And uh, nothing in me wanted it. Nothing. Nothing. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Now, did he have a place to store his crops? Quick. Did he? How do you know? That's right. Smart cookie over here. She said, because he's going to tear down his barns. It's embarrassing. He's going to tear down his barns. He began reasoning to himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store my... Did he have a place to store his crops? (laughs) Yes, he did. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Isn't it fascinating? Some of us, Caleb, in my age watching all of these uh, storage places going up. You guys don't realize that's, that's a relatively recent invention. When I was young, there were no storage sheds or what do they call them? Storage, self-storage places. And now they're a growth industry, let me tell you. And now they need to be temperature controlled. You know, we even want our surplus goods to be warm. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, what is that? What that is, is that's Doug Ummel. And uh, what is it called? Uh, Herlow Wealth Management or Investments. 
you know, we think, well, I haven't torn down any barns. And I say, yeah, we've invented barns that don't, you, you, you can just keep adding to them. You don't need to tear any barns down. You just keep adding. And it's called uh, Dave Ramsey. That's what it is today. And every Christian thinks that he, is, he has become more godly when he does what Dave Ramsey tells him to do. And so we hire Doug or we hire Gandalf to manage our wealth and we think we're spiritual. Because we did what they told us. We first put 1,000 away and then we put 5,000 and then 10,000. Pretty soon we had 100,000 and then we had 300 and then we had 500. And you say, well, I don't have that. And I say, well, you may have that 1,000. And you say, well, that's just responsibility. And I say, okay, so where does responsibility end and greed begin? Huh? Huh? How about hardwood floors? You see, there's a concept in sociology called relative deprivation. And you've never looked at your own heart. David, I'll finish. Sit down. I'll finish. Thank you. I saw you. That's helpful. He was about to get up and tell me I had five minutes, and I just saw him, so I know. I've got five minutes to be done, okay? Um, And the concept of relative... Any of you want to define the concept of relative deprivation? Nobody's chomping at the bit. Yeah, but Ben, speak up, please. Yeah, it's not actually that. It's it's the opposite of that, which is we feel like we are what with us. Typically, the way it works is we feel like we're not rich because look at the rich, and so it's deprivation, you know, and and we judge our lack by other people's, what they have. And so you and Rachel can feel poor when you're actually richer than anybody who's ever existed in history. Because in this church, you have less than everybody else. And so, but it's totally perverse. You you look at that man that had uh, wealth that he put in the barns, and I would guess that probably half of us in this church have more than that man had. And, and what we think is, we always think, well, I'm just doing what the Bible says. A man that doesn't provide for his own is worse than a pagan. And so that's the principle that allows us to be greedy because the Bible says the man that doesn't provide for his own is worse than a pagan. And so we listen to Dave Ramsey, we talk to Doug, we go to the deacons, we decide to burn our credit cards, then we build barns, then we build houses, then we add on to our property, and, and all we're doing is providing for our own, like the Bible says, right? And Jesus says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. And and you know how every older person in this country says, I don't want to be a burden to my children, right? We've, we all heard that, right? And so there's the principle again. Come, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And we say, well, I've never said that. I don't drink, And I sure as heck aren't merry. 
And that's just perverse. You should be married. You see, poor Christians should be married. And generally they are. Take your ease. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? There's a great um, statement in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will... Wait a second, that's not the one. Um, Just a second. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. (laughs) And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. And, you know, you see this with rich people that leave it to their children. It's just, like, sickening. My dad used to say that no son of a rich man is ever worth anything. And why? You know, there's nothing about riches that should corrupt a son until you think riches corrupt a son. Right? And why? They destroy initiative. And so rich men always say, this too is vanity. I've acted wise, and then I leave it to a fool. That's why a rich friend, friend of mine who's very, very wealthy has a whole group of people up in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And they're all wealthy Christians, and they've all determined that the only way to protect their money is to give it all away before they die. And so they have an agreement, and they're all working to give their money away before they die because they say rich people always have their money ending up doing the very opposite of what their commitments are after they die. So, one last comment or exhortation, okay? So, Jesus says, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared, okay? And then he says this. He says, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, at the end of everything that Jesus teaches us, he gives us a seesaw. He gives us a pivot, all right? And the pivot is what? The pivot is storing up treasure for himself or being rich to God. And as one goes up, the other goes down. And that's what I want to leave you with. As you're rich towards God, you're poor towards yourself. As you're rich towards yourself, you're poor towards God. Do you understand that? That's a pivot. Don't lie to yourself and tell you that those things are are mutually beneficial. They're not. You say, well, what does it mean to be rich towards God? And I say, that's for me to know and you to find out. (laughs) Now, that's the kind of thing where I think it's right for us to say, you know, who made me a judge over your money? People will say that to me. They'll say, should I tithe the net and gross? And I say, oh, please, get a life. That's such a pathetic question. Who made me a judge between your net and your gross? (laughs) You know, that's like people say to me, should I tithe uh, my my time with three children or four or should I use birth control? I say, oh, please, who made me a judge about whether or not you should have more children? Such a pathetic question. And that's the final thing I want to say this morning, which is there's no question in my mind 
that today in our culture, the man and the woman who are married and, and have children, whether they have them naturally or adopt them or foster, those who have children are rich towards God. Because everybody believes that children are a pain today. And so it doesn't make any, you know, people look at us as people who have children because we want to be secure in our old age. And I would just ask you, do you think Ann and Tim Wagner are secure today? Huh? Do you? Having children today is very vulnerable. And so the first thing I would apply is when you decide that you're going to have children, that is a decision to be poor in the eyes of the world. And I have no question that it is to be rich towards God. And you say, well, my motivations are sinful. And I say, of course. You wouldn't believe how perverse your motivations are. And when you get done with yourself, come look inside my brain. Yes, there are always bad motivations to do righteous things. But why not live by faith that God takes your measly efforts and blesses them? So let's leave with the pivot. The pivot is what? The pivot is being rich towards God and poor towards yourself or being rich towards yourself and poor to God. And that's the pivot, okay? So if you listen to Dave Ramsey, that's fine. But don't fool yourself. God doesn't want you secure in your old age. That's a bunch of bunk. And he doesn't need your grants. It would have been very dignified and godly if Jared had ended up in the steel mill. And the fact that you're not on a 10-year track position, it's no problem. And I do honor you for the way you handle your money. It's a beautiful thing. I get to see things that the rest of you don't. And boy, Ben Burlingham is wonderful with his and Emily's money. Right, Emily? Isn't it sweet? And Ben asked me to say that this morning. (laughs) But you guys, honestly, Jesus said, look at who's putting what into the offering plate. And I'm telling you, this man, Ben, is so godly with his money. And by the way, Adam Spadey is too. I just want you all to know that. Now, don't worry, I don't know about all of you. But you know, sometimes I'm sitting at a restaurant with a man. And he's older and he tells me that he just got hearing aids. And that so-and-so gave them to him. And that's the kind of thing a pastor hears all the time. And so you get to know people And it's a secret gift, but you hear about secret gifts sometimes because you're praying and you're concerned about how somebody's going to take care of themselves. And then the prayers are answered with a secret gift. So that's why I know some of this stuff. So anyhow, let's pray.